Welcome back, Hemingway Brainiac faces, to the Hemingway List podcast, the best one you've ever heard. Talking about chapter 30 of of Human Bondage. Check out patreon.com slash the Hemingway List if you would like to support this podcast. Thanks. What a time to be alive. That was the discussion prompt that I gave you guys. What a time to be alive. Swims to the mum of fish, he said, I wonder if this description of the affair is really about M's relationship with John Allingham Brooks. Although it is pretty much given that Haywood character was based on Brooks, the background, here it is, at 16, Morchum, the name that shall not be used, Morchum, refused to continue at the King's School. His uncle allowed him to travel to Germany where he studied literature, philosophy, and German at Heidelberg. Sorry, I'll stop doing weird voices. I'm not even good at it. Uh, at Heidelberg University. During his year in Heidelberg, Morchum met and had a sexual affair with John Allingham Brooks, an Englishman, Englishman, 10 years his senior. Brooks stayed at a pension in Heidelberg, that's a pension, in 1890, where he formed a close relationship with the young Somerset Morchum. His relationship with Morchum was significant both as Morchum's, i stop saying that name, first sexual experience and for forming his literary tastes. Langham Brooks was a homosexual aesthete, short like Morchum, but with a noble Byronic forehead, curly chestnut hair, <laughs> I thought I said chest hair for a second, uh, sensual lips, and enough money to travel and cultivate his tastes. He and M talked of art and literature in Italy, of Greece. He fired the young man's imagination and became the arbiter of his tastes. That's from a book about Somerset Morgham by Ted Morgan. The character of Haywood is Morgham's of human bondage, an aesthete who is just back from Germany and admires Patter and influences Philip. The young protagonist is obviously based on Allingham Brooks. M's close relationship with Brooks certainly would have been noticed and set tongues wagging. Of Human Bondage was published in 1915. Writing about homosexual relationships may have been a career suicide. Maybe he cloaked the truth with a relationship. Sorry, cloaked the truth in a relationship with a young German girl and a Chinese male. Uh, oh, hey, there we go. That could be what it is. I thought we were getting a bit of gay vibes from young Morgan, from young Philip. Sorry, I should say. Um, my gaydar was going all over the place. Pinging. Pinging my gaydar. Um, which is finely tuned, you should know. As a straight male. Um, but, um, yeah, this thing about sub substituting his experience with a Chinese man and a German girl could be. Could be. Do you think he just made that up entirely, or do you think he that's also based on something that he saw or heard about and decided to use that as a substitute for his experience? Um, I don't know. I don't know. And Trepper said this. Yeah, that was a little grating on the sensibilities. There was a feeling of oriental depravity. I don't even want to know what this means. But if you read, read old books, you must steel yourself to be slapped in the face with old notions and prejudices. Ugh. I'll try to shake that off. I still like the book. I suppose it just meant that, like, well, he was in England. 
Oh, no, he was in Germany, wasn't he? But a gentleman, right? And uh, maybe, you know, the Orientals, as they called them, um, often came to do, well, I don't know, actually, with England. I'm thinking of, like, Australia. But in early Australia in that time, the people that came here from China or from all over the world, but, you know, if you're talking about a Chinese person, they came here to do, like, coal mining or prospecting or, like, tough jobs. They didn't come here, you know, um, with sort of lofty career paths. It was it was sort of the dregs work that they came here to do. Uh, and so they came from poverty to try to scratch a living out of the dirt, quite literally. And so maybe that's what I meant by the depravity word, the fact that they were quite literally, you know, Wait, what does depraved? Depraved. No, okay. No, I'm wrong. See, I'm thinking depraved means like, um, like, uh, poverty. But it doesn't mean poverty, does it? It means I'm looking at the definition here, and it says moral corruption or wickedness. So, no, I'm wrong. Everything I just said was wrong. I'm dumb. I'm a dumb idiot. Okay, never mind. <laughs> I had, my, I had my own internal definition of depravity wrong, so I thought maybe they're just trying to say, like, that they're, uh, like, poverty, you know, oriental poverty, which is still, you know, you shouldn't say oriental, but uh, it's better than oriental depravity. Oh, yeah. Uh, what does Philip <clears throat> have against Emil? He calls him a stupid lout, says he blunders about, even when he first met him, when he arrived at the boarding house, he referred to his, um, him, him as a clumsy lout. Yet, there is nothing in the text that describing him doing anything loutish or bumbling. Where does this contempt come from? Um, Captain Venoms said, Isn't the na narrator calling him those things, at least in the part where he blunders about serving dinners? Trepper said, yes, you're probably right. In my head, I read it as Philip's point of view, regardless why the name calling without showing us why. Yeah, that's a bit strange. Maybe, well, you'd think it should amount to something. You know, maybe you will see that come about. But it's not very good storytelling to just tell us that someone's clumsy and then, you know, they've told us rather than showed us sort of thing. So now when we see them be clumsy later... It will just, we'll just, it'll be what we expect to see, you know. And there's kind of no fun in just seeing what you expect to see. You want to watch it unfold for yourself and make your own conclusions. Oh, this guy's kind of clumsy, uh, rather than just being told up front. All right, I um, I need to move on to the next chapter. That's what I need to do. I finished the conversation. Good. Yes. Good. I also need to wake my brain up because it's not working very well oh tired i um just did 800 calories on the machine not my biggest effort but uh i think i'm still sort of catching up a little bit from the previous days so uh you know there's my update on my on my exercise for you i'm sure you care this is chapter 31 and it goes like this haywood after staying for a month 
sorry, after saying for a month that he was going south next day and delaying from week to week out of inability to make up his mind to do, to bother to the bother of packing and the tedium of a journey, had at least been driven off just before Christmas by the preparations of for that festival. He could not support the thought of a Teutonic merrymaking. It gave him goose flesh to think of the season's aggressive cheerfulness, and in his desire to avoid the obvious, he determined to travel on Christmas Eve. Philip was not sorry to see him off, for he was a downright person, and it irritated him that anybody should not know his own mind. Though much under Hayward's influence, he would not grant that indecision pointed to a charming sensitiveness, and he resented the shadow of a sneer with which Hayward looked upon his straight ways. They corresponded. Hayward was an admirable letter writer, and knowing his talent, took pains with his letters. His temperament was receptive to the beautiful influences which, with the, which he came in contact, and he was able, in his letters from Rome, to put a subtle fragrance of Italy. He thought the city of the ancient Romans a little vulgar, finding distinction only in the decadence of the empire, but the Rome of the popes appealed to his sympathy, and in his chosen words, quite exquisitely, there appeared a rococo beauty. He wrote of old church music and the Alban hills, and the languor of incense and the charm of the streets by night in the rain, when the pavements shone and the light of the street lamps was mysterious. Perhaps he repeated these admirable letters to various friends. He did not know what a troubling effect they had upon Philip. They seemed to make his life very humdrum. With the spring, Hayward grew dithyrambic. dithyrambic. He proposed that Philip should come down to Italy. He was wasting his time at Heidelberg. The Germans were gross, and life there was common, How could the soul come to her own in that prim landscape? In Tuscany, the spring was scattering flowers through the land, and Philip was nineteen. Let him come, and they would wander through the mountain towns of Umbria. Their names sang in Philip's heart, and Cassilli, too, with her lover, had gone to Italy. When he thought of them, Philip was seized with a restlessness he could not account for. He cursed his fate because he had no money to travel, and he knew his uncle would not send him more than the fifteen pounds a month which had been agreed upon. He had not managed his allowance very well. His pension and the price of his lessons left him very little over, and he had found going about with Haywood expensive. Haywood had often suggested excursions, a visit to the play, or a bottle of wine, when Philip had come to the end of his month's money, and with the folly of his age, he had been unwilling to confess he could not afford an extravagance. Luckily, Hayward's letters came seldom, and in the intervals Philip settled down again to his industrious life. He had matriculated at the university and attended one or two courses of lectures. Kuno Fisher was then at the height of his fame, and during the winter had been lecturing brilliantly on Schopenhauer. It was Philip's introduction to philosophy. He had a practical mind, and moved uneasily amid the abstract, but he found an unexpected fascination in listening to metaphysical disquisitions. They made him breathless. It was a little like watching a tightrope dancer doing perilous feats over an abyss, but it was very exciting. The pessimism of the subject attracted his youth, and he believed that the world was about to enter he was about to enter was a place of pitiless woe and of darkness. That made him none the less eager to enter it, 
and when in due course Mr. Carey, acting as a correspondent for his guardian's view, views, suggested that it was time for him to come back to England, he agreed with enthusiasm. He must make up his mind now what he must do. If he left Heidelberg at the end of July, they could talk things over during August and it would be a good time to make arrangements. The date of his departure was settled and Mrs. Carey wrote to him again. She reminded him of Miss Wilkinson through those through whose kindness he had gone to Frau Erlin's house at Heidelberg and told him that she had arranged to spend a few weeks with them at Blackstable. She would be crossing from Flushing on such and such a day and if he travelled at the same time he could look after her and come on to Blackstable in her company. Philip's shyness immediately made him right to say that he could not leave till a day or two afterwards. He pictured himself looking out for Miss Wilkinson, the embarrassment of going up to her and asking if it were she, and he might so easily address the wrong person and be snubbed, and then the difficulty of knowing whether in the train he ought to talk to her or whether he could ignore her and read his book. At last he left Heidelberg. For three months he had been thinking of nothing but the future, and he went without regret. He never knew that he had been happy there. Fräulein Anna had gave him a copy of Der Trompeteur von Sackingen, and in return he presented her with a volume of Mor- William Morris. Very wisely, neither of them ever read the others present. All right, there we go. There's another chapter done. Have your say about that one over on the subreddit. Thanks very much for listening, and I will see you tomorrow.